Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. As we've uh, been going through Second uh, Samuel, First Samuel, we've stopped along the way as we've uh, had historical psalms to be able to turn to. I've, I've enjoyed those moments of turning to those psalms as a, as a moment to be able to see uh, another aspect, I was thinking about this today when I was preparing some sermons, um, a sermon for in Genesis, where we find out so much more when we have the whole Bible to be able to go through. In, in Genesis, he, um, Jacob blesses his uh, Joseph's two sons, and we find out in, in Hebrews that, in Hebrews 11, verse 21, I believe it is, where it says, by faith, Jacob blessed the two sons of Joseph. So we find out something that we don't know in the Genesis account of when we turn to the Genesis account, we see that he blesses the two sons and we can understand that it's through faith that Jacob knows what he's doing is of God. But Hebrews, the author of Hebrews specifically mentions that fact of what he is doing in Genesis chapter 48. And so too, when we go through the Psalms, we've enjoyed those moments of trying to be able to see a little bit else, another perspective, another aspect that the Holy Spirit uh, inspired us to be able to know. Some of those have been quite clear, as we looked at last week. Uh, Psalm uh, 3, a Psalm of David, when he fled from uh, from Absalom, his son. It's quite clear when this was in uh, his life, when he wrote this particular psalm. Another one that we know all too well in Psalm 51, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So we know exactly when this is, Second Samuel chapter 12, after Nathan the prophet comes to him, and uh, that glorious psalm of confession about who God is and why we would confess to him, but also how we are to confess to him. But there's others that we don't know specifics about. We know uh, Psalm 142, a mascal of David, when he was in the cave of prayer. Now we know a couple of things about this as we've looked at before. We looked at this psalm, but Psalm 142, we know that it's written by David. Uh, we know that it's written by David in a cave. We didn't, uh, you know, what cave? There's a couple of times in his life he was in a cave. The cave of Adullam in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22, the cave of Engedi in 1 Samuel chapter 24. I said it was chapter 24 because Psalm 57 also says that it was written while he was in the cave um, when he fled from Saul. So there's a little bit more. So we kind of chose 2 Samuel chapter 24 because we'd already done a psalm in the cave in um, chapter 22. But also uh, the mention of the cave. Um, Now... You need to look at the answer, the text to be able to find out a little bit more about if we can find out specifics about the, that uh, psalm. And so tonight we look at Psalm uh, 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So again, just like we know that uh, Psalm 142 was written by David when he was in a cave, we know that Psalm 63 is written by David uh, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, that doesn't necessarily narrow it down. It narrows his, his moments in his life where this could have been. We know that Samuel, uh, David was in, a, in the wilderness before. Many chapters in 1 Samuel, actually, when he was in the wilderness. So why am I choosing now 
to be able to look at this psalm, and specifically, why do I think Psalm 63 fits now later in David's life than prior to? And I think there's two main reasons for it. The first, I think, is one of my where I think I rest most of my argument upon, and the second is 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 not as uh, as as significant. But in Psalm uh, 63, in verse 11, we see. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now, here it says, but the king shall rejoice in God. Now, previous when David was in the wilderness, he was not the king. He was only anointed as king, although we knew he was going to be king. It was specifically Saul who was king. Now, the reason I say that it, it, this is one of the stronger arguments why I think Psalm 63 focuses on in Second Samuel where we are now rather than First Samuel is because all, there, there's a difference. When David is anointed as king, we know him he is going to be king, but he's not referred to as the king until later in Hebron in Second Samuel. So we know this. there's a clear line. Just as Saul was anointed king in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9 and then 10, and then, but he's not really made until king until the, the whole people of Israel know. So there's this period of time between being anointed as king and being proclaimed as king. And I think that's true of David too. He, he's anointed as king during that time in 1 Samuel when he's in the wilderness, but he's not actually king at that point. So I think that this, in Psalm 63, speaks of, but the king will rejoice in God. Who's that king? The king is King David. And specifically uh, in this time in 2 Samuel. Now, I think that's the main reason why I think uh, we find Psalm 63 uh, in 2 Samuel. But the second argument is, is probably not as strong, but it says there, but the mouths of the liars will be stopped. Although I think you could make a case that Saul was a liar, it's not necessarily one of the clear things that are put in his path. I think one of the main things that you see in Saul is his pride, his jealousy. It springs up right in that moment when the, the young virgins are singing as they enter into the, the, to the city that, that Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. So we think that Although you might be able to make that argument that uh, Saul is a liar, I don't think that necessarily fits within the context. I think it fits better within this context of 2 Samuel. Remember 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 10, But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. Again, this secret uh, messengers, these spies that um, Absalom sends out. Everyone else doesn't know what's happening. There's this deceitfulness. There's this conspiracy that's happening amongst uh, Absalom. But then even just remember last week when we looked at Psalm 3, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So even you can make that liar connection a little bit more strong. So with that in mind, I think this is why I, I decided to leave this for Second Samuel, 
is because I think this psalm fits better in context with the, with the uh, evidences we have. that it, it, When it speaks of David being in the wilderness of Judah, it speaks more specifically of the wilderness of Judah in 2 Samuel. Now, we need to keep that in mind. And before we read the psalm, I also want you to keep in mind two other things. And that's just the first is a quick comment that we need to be reminded that it's written in the wilderness. That the wilderness is, is that of a dry, uh, weary land, hot sun, no shade, no water. And I think that's why this psalm makes it very interesting to know of the context in which David is surrounded by, the, the scenery that he's surrounded by. The second thing we need to be reminded of is the wilderness is not merely just a place in the Bible. The wilderness have, has, has large connection to the, the historical journey of the Israelites. The, the wilderness is often where we see God's hand at work. We'll, we'll see this as we go through Genesis, um, Exodus. But, but just the amazing uh, connections that you see of, of, of what the wilderness does for the people of Israel. So we, we need to keep that in mind as we read this psalm, but also as we continue to study in Second Samuel. Well, let me read Psalm 63 here, and then we'll get started with uh, looking at it specifically. Hear now the word of the Lord from Psalm 63. A psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with, as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. So as we think about this psalm, what I've entitled this lesson is How to Survive in the Desert how to survive in the wilderness. And here David gives us this uh, survival guide, you might say. You might have seen some of these survival guides. We've, uh, there are some funny ones I got given. Um, survival guide of being a dad, um, you know, uh, for Father's Day one, one year of how, how to be a, a dad. And it's kind of funny uh, illustrations. Others are more serious of how to survive if, if you're in the wilderness or how do you survive in these situations. Um, and here, I think David gives us this survival guide of how we are to survive in the desert. And the first thing that we see is the craving soul, the craving soul. Now, often, very often, in fact, our children come up to us and tell me that you're 
they're hungry. And like any father in any type of situation like this, you must respond by saying, well, hello, hungry, I'm dad, nice to meet you. But when they use the word hungry, they specifically are are not necessarily talking about hunger as uh, we might have felt it at times, or even um, what we generally would mean when they say that they're hungry, what they're meaning is they're Uh, ready for food. They're ready for something to eat. Or the thing that I ate an hour ago uh, is is now left a small pocket of air in my stomach, and that pocket needs to be filled. Or they want to torture you. You have moments to be able to prepare something for them. They make up their mind, and you prepare it for them, and, and then where is it? It's left on the counter or the table as they go off and play uh, and leave you be. But, however, that's what normally what we shouldn't think about when we think about what it means to be hungry or thirsty. Now, when we use these terms, often we are thinking about them in a mild and uh, term. Our lips are somewhat parched. We don't know necessarily the pain of not eating for weeks. Uh, maybe some of us do in some situations in our life, but Often it is that we haven't had food within the last couple of hours rather than weeks without food or days without water. However, David in the wilderness is not so concerned about that. He speaks of his soul and how he longs for God. And that is what he is longing for the most. In verse 1, O God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And what David is saying here is that he he would rather have God, as he is reminded of his physical condition of being out in the wilderness now. He's reminded of his spiritual condition, of how his soul thirsts for God. His flesh faints Not for food, but for God. He says he doesn't want water or bread, but what he wants is God. And he explains a little bit about this in verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. The believer knows that this life is short-lived. That everlasting life is longer than the life we live now. And David says that, God's steadfast love is better than life. Now at that moment, if we were honest with ourselves, what would we rather? Who would we rather have next to us? That he says, his steadfast love is better than life. But what did Esau do? Esau came in and he He was so hungry, he despised his birthright and sold his birthright for a single meal. His his mind was not focused on God's steadfast love. His mind was focused on his life at this time. But we need to be cautious that we do not flip this equation around. Often we seem to convolute the two. We, We flip the symbol in the middle altogether. What we do is we place value on life over God. And you're never going to be able to survive the desert like that. 
Now, what this is not saying is not saying that life is insignificant. It's invaluable. It's valuable. It's not valuable. What it does, it prioritizes where God's steadfast love is compared to life. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1, uh, verses 20 to 21. As long it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He's not going to flip that equation around and say that life is, is all that I have. But to live is Christ. To die is gain. Because of this, David has this purpose of his life. Again, he's not giving up at this time and saying life is, does not matter. Life is not valuable. But it's what he does with his life that he sees as valuable. That his life needs to be craving, have a craving soul for God. He says in verse 4, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. That here he, you see that his life still has value because of God. His worship towards God. Even in the desert, in the wilderness, he still worships God. Now again, remember to chapter 15, when the king says to Zadok in verse 25, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. Let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. And he he understands the shortness, the brevity of life. The promise of God is not that he will sit on his throne forever, but once he lies down with his fathers, then uh, one of his offspring will sit on his throne forever. But as long as I live, he says in verse 4, I will lift up my hands in your name. I will bless God as long as I live. As long as I have breath in my lungs. His focus in the desert is not about survival of his life, per se. But a craving for his soul. That his soul craves God above all else. Which is a very interesting thing to think about. When we're put in those situations, often we turn to that survival of our own and our own life. What we do is sometimes we put God to the side and say, we don't need him. But here David says, he is all that I need. It's not that my life, after I get out of this, then I will worship God. Then I'll be able to do things. As Satan says to to God, well, Job worships you because he has everything. Take everything away from him and then you will see what will happen. Well, David is stripped of everything. But again, his soul still craves for God above all else. The second thing that we see is the contented soul. 
The second way to be able to survive in the desert is to have a contented soul. David turns back to food. Now in the middle of the desert, you can understand that he might have had something on his mind. But he says in verse 5, My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. But what he is not saying, he is not saying that he is satisfied by that fat and rich food. But again, his mind is not on the physical. His mind is on the spiritual. That his soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And as he's satisfied, he's satisfied and what drives his satisfaction is to remember what God has done for him. What God has done. Again, Psalm 63, verse 6 and 7. When I remember you upon my bed, and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. As he lays down, he considers what God has done for him, how he has brought him to this point, how his faithfulness has seen him thus far, how God has answered his prayers, how God has helped him, how God has been by him as he has taken shadow underneath his mighty wings. Psalm 3.3, as we read last week, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. He remembers how God has been his help before him, his shield above him. Or Psalm 91, as we studied some time ago in our evening service. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And he finds his shelter in the middle of the desert under the shadow of God's wings. Once you realize that God is greater than life, then you understand properly and priorities. Often we think in terms of, in aspects that we do not know or things that we do not have. But what this leads to is discontentment. We'll spend some time talking about this this Sunday in our morning service. But Spurgeon explains that discontentment are just like weeds in the gardens. Now I have never needed to go out into my garden and plant weeds. Never. It takes a lot for me to be able to grow a plant. I have to do nothing to be able to grow weeds. And Spurgeon explains that discontentment are just like weeds in the garden. Discontentment springs up out of our sinful hearts. But contentment is that of like flowers that need to be tended and looked after. They require work. And David is here in the wilderness, not living in a house of cedar, probably roaming and roaming around, not having the food that's on the table of in the king's presence. But he, here he says that his soul is satisfied. And his soul is satisfied, why? Because of God. Now again, 
remember what we said before. We need to be reminded of that he's in the wilderness, but also what that means in the connection to the wilderness with Israel's history. That what did David do? David remembered what God had done. And the Israelites forgot what God had done. We'll spend a little bit of time on this uh, this week. But Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 and 6, Now there was a rabble among them who had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember we ate fish in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and garlic. And now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now they remember, but they do not remember God's faithfulness in bringing them out, God's strength, God's provision, even of providing them manna in the middle of the desert, and enough for them to be able to be sustained. But what do they remember? They remember the fish that costs nothing. But also when we're in that place of the wilderness where discontentment has a very strange memory. You notice how they said that that fish costs nothing? Well, they weren't free. They were slaves. They were slaves in Egypt. Slaves underneath a harsh master. Who actually, they said, we can't do this anymore. Now we've got to go get straw and make our mud to make your bricks. We've got to still fulfill the same amount of quota, this heavy burden that's upon our back. We don't remember that. We remember the fish that cost us nothing. But also notice their subtlety in what they're thinking. Their thinking is not about their soul their relationship to God, it's about their physical things. The day, their belly, not their soul. Simon Ash says that contentment is the way for a Christian to be contented is not by raising his estate higher, but bringing his spirit lower. Not by making his barns wider, but his heart narrower. One man... A whole lordship or manor will not be content, will not content him. Another is satisfied with a few acres of land. What is the difference? The one studies to satisfy curiosity, the other necessity. The one thinks what he may have, the other thinks what he may spare. And here you find David in the wilderness. And he is satisfied with God after being thrown out of his castle, his throne, his city. But then you compare it to the Israelites and their discontent after receiving their freedom. Again, what did Simon Ash say? One thinks of what he may have, fish. It cost us nothing. The other thinks he what may what he may spare. Everything besides God. David would not want to go back to the throne if that meant that he was away from God. But Israelites at that very moment would have despised their birthright. 
gone back into slavery just to be able to have some fish and some melon. And contentment is only found in Christ. For you know that everything may be taken from you just in a moment. All the things that we hold dear are gifts from God. But as Job tells his wife in Job chapter 2, And Job, his, his wife turns to him and says, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die! But he turns around to her and says, You speak of one of a foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, on a side note, he called his wife a foolish woman, and then it's attested with the scriptures saying that Job did not sin with his lips. I would be very cautious for the men to call your wife a foolish woman without that secondary uh, knowing of what the Holy Spirit says that he did not sin with his lips. But I think discontentment can be one of our greatest sins. I know it's one of the biggest I struggle with. I have many, but this one I am constantly reminded of the weeds that grow. I try and read every year Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The reason I read this every year is because I know it is such a big struggle of sin. And how rare indeed contentment truly is. that contentment is found in Christ. Now, people will often misquote Scripture, but I do believe one of the most misquoted Scriptures found in Philippians 4, verse 13. Because we hear it, 4, verse 13 says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, this generally applied in people's lives means puts a general philosophy of the world, that if you believe in yourself, or you believe in Christ enough, then you can do anything. But I do not believe, actually, they understand what it actually is speaking of. Prior to this, Paul says that in verse 11, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound, In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. What He is speaking of there is being content. That I can do all things, God strengthens me enough to be able to get through every situation, every time. That I am content. And often when people misquote that verse, what they're actually saying is that I can get more, be more, have more. But the verse is actually saying almost the opposite. That whatever situation I find myself in, Christ has given me the strength to be able to do all that I need to do. And David says the same thing in verse 5. My soul will be satisfied 
as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Again, he is in the middle of the wilderness. And he thinks about his soul that is satisfied. The third thing that we see is the clinging soul. Lastly, David's survival guide to the wilderness is that we have, must have a clingy soul. Now, Nora is going through a phase, and one of that phase is that she really just wants one thing. Actually, it's not about what she wants, it's who she wants. She's slowly getting out of it. But she's going through that stage where it's mommy, mommy, mommy. Mommy goes downstairs to be able to, to put on the washing or bring up the washing or something. Or she goes out and, and Nora walks around the house. Where is she? Um, she's getting to the end of this. I've, you know, praise the Lord. It takes a while, but, but she, she, she knows the absence when Mommy is not there. And she seeks for mommy when she is not there. And she's not content until mommy is there. And David expresses that his soul is clinging to God during this time. That he does not want to let go of God. Just as discontentment is hard to fight, as the weeds come up again and again, Just because you're content today or learn to be content today does not mean that you will be content tomorrow. But our souls should be sticky. Joshua, at the end of his life, gives Israelites instructions. And he tells him very clearly in Joshua chapter 22 that they are to cling to God. Joshua chapter 22 verse 5. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God, and to walk in all His ways, and to keep His commandments, and to cling to Him. And to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Again in Joshua 23 verse 9. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, let no man, no man has been able to stand before you on this day. And here, God has been able to do this. That you are to cling to God. If you are going to survive in the desert, the way you survive is by clinging to God. Just as Ruth would not lift, let Naomi go, as Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, Naomi, Ruth clung to her. This is what David says that we should do. That we should not let go of God. Now we're grateful when we might let go of God, that God does not let go of us. That he says in verse 8, that my soul clings to you. But then he says, your right hand upholds me. One of my favorite verses in scripture is in the little book of Jude. The last two verses of that. Here it is a benediction sometimes. Verses 24 and 25. 
Now to him who is able to do more to, and can keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time and now and forevermore. So what happens when you don't use this survival guide? What happens when your soul is not craving, is not content, is not clinging to God? Like anything, the remedy is not then to just try harder, to do better. The remedy is to go to Christ. Jesus tells the woman at the well that everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. David understood that he would not survive the desert or the wilderness if he only had the physical needs to be able to sustain him throughout those days. But he would be worse off than how he entered. His soul needed to crave God, to to be content in God, to cling to God and to Him alone. We come to God because as we are walking through this wilderness of this life, we too need this survival guide as well. We will not survive if we do not crave God. Be content in God. Cling to God. A great hymn, Guide Me, O Great Redeemer, or Jehovah. Pilgrim through this barren land, when I am weak, you are mighty. Hold me with your powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me now and evermore. Open now the crystal fountain where the healing waters flow. Let the fire and cloudy pillar lead me all the journey through. Strong deliverer, strong deliverer, ever be my strength and shield. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. We need to be reminded that we are the ones walking through the wilderness. We need to have this survival guide and know the survival guide if we're ever going to make it. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.